right. Well, hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Um, while you're doing that, let me mention something that uh, it's my failure. Um, usually in May, the first week of May, we do a, a mission giving Sunday. We do one in March, one in May, and then in September and November. Well, I missed the one in May. I guess the first week or two of May are a blur to me because there's other things I've missed too. But I missed that when it occurred to me the other night. So we are going to schedule that for next Sunday. That's our mission giving Sunday next Sunday the 22nd, which just means any of the offering that, that comes in that day or online, we, get, we put towards our mission partners and our Hispanic ministry and our benevolence fund. So I'm sorry I missed that, but I want you to know that is coming. All right, Battlegrounds, we're continuing. Now today is going to be fun. This is going to be well, let me just say this. You're going to walk away with more questions than you have answers, and that's, that's not a bad thing. But um, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, um, if you have those. Page 4, if you're using the Bibles from the chairs. Now, I'm going to say, so we're, we're entering into the, the part of this series, and we're going to go through the summer. We'll, we'll do this week, next week. We're going to take a break on Memorial Day, and then we'll get back into it in June, and then we'll have like one, one Sunday break in July, and then we'll keep plugging away. But... Um, this is the Sunday where we're going to start introducing ourselves to what does the scripture say about some of these other spiritual beings, right? We would commonly call them demons. So we're starting to get in that, which then means a lot of what's going to follow is just going to be going a little further into that, a little further into that, a little further than that, which is what, honestly, most people, when they think of spiritual warfare, that's what they think of, demons, right? So I've been, I've been real intentional to, to kind of slow us up as we get to this point so that we're building a foundation and we're building a framework upon which we can then put, you know, everything, everything else up. But we're, we're here. Now, I did, um, we're going to be looking at Genesis 6, 1 through 4. I'm not going to spend as much time on it as I have before. Um, we did a sermon back on January 12th of 2020 on Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and we spent the entire sermon on that. So there's going to be more there. So I would point you to our website, January 12th, 2020, uh, or at that time we were using Vi uh, Vimeo instead of YouTube. So you can go find our Vimeo page, and that's where all of our sermons prior to March 2020 are. But, but we're going to touch on it again today. But as you think about, so what we did was we, we said, okay, where's the first place in the scriptures that we see a, a, a spiritual enemy, so to speak? And so we start with Satan in the garden, right? As you continue to track through your scriptures, there comes a spot in Genesis 6 where you're going, is it or is it not? Is it or is it not? And so I'm going to present it to you this morning as it is. And, and, and maybe a little bit of why I think it is uh, dealing with spiritual warfare, why we, we might be seeing some, some spiritual beings in rebellion. But, but here's the thing. Today's going to be real heavy on teaching because, because of the content. Um, and, and so some of that's going to feel like it, it, it maybe is a, is a bit heavier, and that's not my, my intent, but I, I want to be able to explain some things um, with it. But nonetheless, here's where I think we're, we're going to go. So this is, this is not my bottom line statement. I'm just telling you we're introducing ourselves this morning to other spiritual beings. Here's where we're going this morning. Rebellious spiritual beings, and I'm intentionally saying spiritual beings because I'm trying not to label them yet. You'll see why. Rebellious spiritual beings interact with humanity, but humanity must stand against them. Okay, that, that's, that's what I hope, if you're not already aware of this, that's what I hope you're going to see this morning from these, these scriptures that we look at, that there are rebellious spiritual beings that interact with humanity, but we, humanity, must stand against them. All right, so here, here we go. So 
we're going to look at some spiritual beings that have rebelled against God. And so Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So you know, up to this point, Genesis, Adam, Eve, well, creation, Adam, Eve, and the garden, chapter 2. We've looked at chapter 3, where the serpent comes and he deceives Eve. Eve gives to Adam. Adam eats as well. Sin enters into the human race. Chapter 4, you start to see the impact of sin entering the human race because you see the first murder. Cain kills Abel, right? You see the jealousy that, that goes on there. Chapter 5, you might find that chapter 5 seems out of place, but it's not because God said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Well, we didn't mean that they would die in that instant, but that death would enter into humanity. And so chapter five, that's what you see. Because for the first time in your scriptures, you see in chapter five, a list of people who have lived and they live to be this, much, this many years old and then they die. And then they live, this person lives to be this many years old and then he died and this many years old. And you just see this list of people who have lived and then they die and then they die and then they die. And so what you start to have ringing in your ears is death has entered in to humanity. You see the impact of sin. Chapter 6 then comes right on the heels of chapter 5. So um, let's take a look. Now I will say, I'm going to scan the room here for a moment. I think we, we might have a few younger ears, so it's just going to be straight from the scriptures, but I'm going to try to curb some of my language uh, a little bit on some of this stuff, just because I forgot to give you a, uh, a heads up on the, on the rating of the sermon. Okay, so we won't, we won't, we won't uh, talk about it uh, as explicitly. We'll just talk maybe a little bit in code. All right, but you'll be able to follow those of you who, who understand. All right, so let's take a look. Chapter, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 is what we're going to look at. And it says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. All right, I'm going to stop there for a moment, and we'll, we'll pick up chapter four in a, uh, verse 4 in a moment. All right, so uh, it seems like it comes out of nowhere. Now, let me just acknowledge something um, this morning that, that I, I, I hope you're, uh, you may not be comfortable with, but I'm going to acknowledge anyway. These verses are weird. They, they describe some strange things. And, and there's a lot of discussion on these verses. And when you're reading it and you're going through your Bible reading plan, you come across these verses and you see um, when, when human beings, and that's just a translation of mankind because that, that's, that's what, what they're trying to get at is not just men, but mankind, humanity. So when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, then you've got this group, sons of God, that sees they're attractive and they marry them. And then the Lord reacts to that, and he's, he's bothered by that. It sounds weird. And so there's some questions we've got we've to uh, answer here. So there's some characters we've got to identify. We've got human beings, all right? So humanity is multiplying over the earth. That's what God told them to do, right? Be fruitful and multiply. So that's what they're doing. As humanity is carrying out the commandment of God to be fruitful and multiply, they're increasing in number, and they're having daughters. You know, they're having sons too, but they're, they're having Daughters, that's, that's the point of these, these verses. The sons of God saw that these daughters of the humans, of mankind, were beautiful. And so they married them, and any one of them that they chose. Now verse 3 lets us know that the Lord is displeased with this. Because the Lord says, My spirit will not con contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. The days of their uh, will be 120 years. Which likely means they had 120 years before he brought the flood on the earth. All right, so, so let's, let's dig into some of this. So human beings, that's easy. Daughters, that's easy. Who are the sons of God? 
Who are the sons of God and how would we find out what, what um, the author of Genesis is referring to when he says these sons of God? Because there's, there's different views. I'm going to tell you this morning why I think that's a class or a category of spiritual beings. That is a class of, we, we might generally call them angels um, because they are being rebellious. We might generally call them demons, right? But those simply are just classes. Why I think the sons of God is a particular category of spiritual beings and some of these sons of God have rebelled against their creator. So here's why I, why, why I think that. Sons of God, if I want to know what, what are the sons of God, one of the things I'm going to do is go look through the rest of the book of Genesis. I'm going, to, I'm going to search that phrase, sons of God. When is it used? And who is it used of? And then I'm going to expand my search, and I'm going to go throughout the Old Testament, because this is Hebrew we're talking about here. So I'm going to look where other books have been written in Hebrew. Where is this phrase, sons of God, and, 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 and where does it show up, or, or variations of it? Where does it show up, and, and who is it describing? And so one of the first places you'll see, if you can do this on an English, if you have a concordance, you can do this. If you have a website, it's going to be a lot easier. You can go to BibleGateway.org. Uh, com, I think it is actually BibleGateway.com, BlueLetterBible.org, or any one of your favorite Bible search websites. And just type in sons of God, and then you should be able to isolate it to search the Old Testament. And you're going to get verses like this show up. For instance, Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also, also came among them. And you've got a similar phrase in Job chapter 2, verse 1, and then also a similar phrase in Job chapter 38, verse 7. And as you read that context, you clearly come away with the sons of God are a group of spiritual beings, angelic beings, right? And then you've got Satan mixed in there as well, and we've already looked at Satan as also a spiritual being. He's an angelic type of being. So you've got this, this group of, of angelic beings, this group of spiritual beings, and they're gathered together before the, the throne room of God. All right, but then you go and you, you, you might find some outside of Job, like for instance in, in Psalm 89, verses 6 and 7. And you read, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the, in this particular uh, translation went this way, who among the heavenly beings, but that's our word, B'nai Elohim. Now, so up here, it's B'nai, sons of Elohim, God. Here it's B'nai El. And it's just a shortened form of God. So it's the same, um, the same construction, but just a shortened name of God. And so this translation says, Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, another reference to spiritual beings, and awesome above all who are around him. Okay, so you're gonna, these are two samples that I'm putting before you, but I'm going to tell you that if you did this search, almost every single one, if not all of them, are going to refer to spiritual beings. There is... Hardly one, I can't, I can't recall one at the moment. I'm just going to allow that there might be one that I'm overlooking. But there's hardly one reference, sons of God, that you find in the Old Testament that refers to humans. And so what I do with that is I say, wow, well, it would be odd then that if the only reference that referred to humans would occur here in a very obscure passage. So rather what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to where is it clear and then I'm going to say if it's clear in all these other cases, and I don't have an example of a case where sons of God means humans, then I'm certainly not going to bring my, my, my definition of humans to here and impose it on the text. The reasons I might want to do that, if I'm just being honest, because I'm very uncomfortable with this being spiritual beings. And it's weird. right? If I can make it humans, and, and, and there are lots of people that make it humans, 
If I can make this humans, then this fits into what I have a capacity to understand and accept. But if this is spiritual beings, I've got some, some strong discomfort because of what it's saying about these spiritual beings and what they've done. Okay? You wrestle with that, but wrestle with it with honesty. Um, study it. Do, do the word search. Search for yourself, sons of God. Because if a phrase means something everywhere else in the Old Testament, and here it's going to mean something different, you have to have a really good reason to make it mean something different. Right? Now, I'll also tell you, within history, up until about 400 A.D., the people who read these verses automatically assumed that this was a supernatural thing taking place. They, they did not have a problem with that. It wasn't until Augustine, the Augustine, right, who he was uncomfortable with it, and so he introduced the first, the first interpretation of these verses that included humanity as sons of God. So keep, keep that in mind. Go and, and, and look at it. But this is why I, I think and have been convinced up to this point that sons of God is a group of spiritual beings. And I'm going to give you some, some more reasons here in a moment. So if that's the case, then let's, let's just break down what was a group of spiritual beings known as the sons of God, at least some of these sons of God, are going outside the bounds of where they've been created and how they've been permitted to relate, and they're taking human daughters for their wives. That's a violation of God's created order. And that upsets God, verse 3, so the Lord says, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. All right? We keep going in verse 4. And verse 4 adds this part. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they, were, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Nephilim, giants. That's, that's the, the, the best definition of that word. Giants, people who are of unusually tall stature. And so the author of Genesis tells us the Nephilim, so his readers would have known who they are because he just references them. He doesn't define them for us. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Well, what days was that? The days when the sons of God took wives from the daughters of men. And they were also on the, on the earth the days after that when the sons of God went into, the, by the way, that's euphemism, went into as a, a, a biblical way of talking about their relational um, capacity, right? So they went into the daughters of humans and they had children by them. So now what we find out is there's offspring. Okay, this, this is why it's very uncomfortable for people when we, when we, if we draw the conclusion that sons of God means spiritual beings, it becomes very uncomfortable because now as I keep reading, I find out these sons of God, these spiritual beings, they took human wives and they had children with these human wives. And it goes on and makes, us, makes the connection that those human children, uh, those children were the Nephilim, these giants. Now, he calls, uh, the author of Genesis says, they, the Nephilim, were the heroes of old, men of renown. They were strong. They were mighty warriors. Now, if this is humans only, then there, there's a lot of questions throughout the Old Testament that still need to be answered. If this is spiritual beings, I think it is, and I've given you some of those reasons why, and the Nephilim are the children, the offspring of these spiritual beings who took wives from humanity, then we've got some things that help make sense throughout the rest of the Old Testament and Scripture. 
Because back in Genesis 3, we're told as, as God is responding to the serpent, we're, said, we're told, hey, um, the seed of the woman will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. So there's going to be this ongoing war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So Satan is the serpent. We looked at that before. And so here we've got these rebellious spiritual beings, and they are creating some offspring called the Nephilim. And now as I start to trace these, the lineage of these Nephilim throughout the Old Testament, I find that um, Goliath was one of them because he is a son of uh, a man, I believe it's Anak, and we can find history on Anak, and Anak is related to the Nephilim. I find out that some of these places in the Old Testament were as the people of Israel were going and, and moving into the land that God had given them, and some places God said, I want you to wipe them all out, all of them, kids included. And that makes no sense to us, and, and we wrestle with why would God go and approve of, of genocide, but if we understand then that the, some of the people that were in that, that, that town or that group or those people were related to the Nephilim, they had a bloodline that was linked back, then what we start to see is God is actually cleansing the earth from these corrupted spiritual beings that, that have come and distorted this, this line. Sounds crazy, right? Right, right okay. So then I, then I start to understand then, okay, that helps me understand why God would say cleanse this people but not this one. Why, why God would say These, this, this group of people here, I want you to wipe them out because there's a bloodline issue here versus, say, other places. It starts to help me, help me see this cosmic battle that God said was going to take place when he said there's going to be this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Because then I start to see it playing out in some of these well-known battles that I'm aware of in Scripture, and I start to see, oh, okay, God is now coming, and he's, he's continuing to show that he is sovereign over all. So take David and Goliath. It's not just the story of a young man who was small and a giant. It's not just the story of God's chosen people, Israel, overcoming their enemy at the time, the Philistines. No, it's also a cosmic battle. Because you've got David, the anointed one of God, coming against one of these Nephilim, Goliath. And David, the anointed one of God, is overcoming him in the power of God. God is showing himself sovereign all throughout the scriptures. right? And he is constantly, constantly showing up in that way. All right. That's about all I'm going to beat these verses to death at the moment in the Old Testament. But I want you to see something else. This is also, I think, the New Testament's perspective on these verses. So when I go to the New Testament and I look at 2 Peter, I've got some weird verses in 2 Peter that if Genesis 6 does not refer to spiritual beings and it only refers to humans, then I've got something that Peter refers to in 2 Peter chapter 2 that, that's nowhere in the Bible. Right? And he says this, he says, talking about false teachers, and, and now he's going he's gonna to give an example. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, that word is Tartarus, which you, you, you can find a whole lot about Tartarus. It's a holding place uh, for, for people. And he committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So that's all Peter gives us. But his point in bringing it up is if God didn't spare the angels when they violated his authority, then he's also not going to spare false teachers. That's his point, right? But what is Peter referring to? The only place you can go to in the scriptures where there might be angels that have sinned would be Genesis 6, chapters 6, 1 through 4. But we don't have anything there about them being cast into hell or anything like that. Jude gives us a little more. Jude, verses 5 and 7. 
Same kind of thing. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, I always like to point that out, by the way, that Jesus, now the, the Greek says the Lord, right? But the translators have come along and said, well, that specifically is a reference to Jesus. Okay, so the Lord or Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So we're talking about God's judgment on those who did not believe. Verse six, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So pause for a moment. Similar to Second Peter, but we find a little bit more out. So there's some angels. They, they sin, but Jude describes it this way. Their sin was they did not stay within their own position of authority. Okay, so they went past a line of authority. So I, I read that, as do many people, right? And they, they go, that sounds like what happened in Genesis 6 if these are spiritual beings. They went past their line of authority, but we keep going. God put them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. So those particular ones that have transgressed, they're being held in chains. Verse seven, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude again is saying, hey, he's dealing with false teachers, people who are, who are threatening the, 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 the gospel and the doctrine of the gospel, and he's telling the people to contend for it. And he's reminding them that God deals with those who distort things like this. And he gives some examples. He talks about the angels, but verse seven, he now gives us Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, you know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. You, you, you know how God rained down his, his, his judgment on them, but you know what was taking place beforehand, how they were just pursuing all kinds of sin of this kind of nature, right? So what, what Jude is doing is he's comparing the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah to that of the angels. That's why he says, which likewise... When he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, they likewise, like who? Like these angels. And then not only did they pursue immorality, but they pursued unnatural desire. If you have a footnote in your Bible, it's gonna say something like an, another possible translation instead of unnatural desire would be um, strange flesh or, or something like that. Which is very interesting to me when I consider Genesis 6, 1 through 4, because if, if God created this, this class of angelic beings, sons of God, they're spiritual beings and they did not have bodies, right? So they can take on bodies, but they don't have bodies. So they're a very different type of being than we are. And they transgressed, they sinned, they crossed over this line that God would have created and they went after strange flesh. See, all of a sudden, this sounds to me like uh, it could possibly be describing Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Otherwise, there's nowhere else in the Bible that these things refer to. But there's also some details that Jude and 2 Peter give us that we don't even find in Genesis 6, like about the judgment, about being held in chains, um, you know, some of this extra stuff here, right? So where did they get that? Back when I preached this in, in, in 2020, I spent more time than what I'm about to do on the book of 1 Enoch. The book of 1 Enoch is not in your Protestant Bible. Let's be clear. It did not make what we call the canon, right? Which means out of the 66 books in the Protestant Bible, these are the ones to the best of humanity's ability as they were seeking God and they were trying to discern what carries God's authority. That's how they came up with these 66 books, right? And so that's where we get 39 in the old and the 27 in the new. 
First Enoch is not one of them in your book. Now, you'll find that in other Bibles, and it's called the Apocrypha, or it's called the Pseudopigrapha. These are extra books that some other, other versions of the Bible will contain. But I want you to hear me very clearly. First Enoch is not one of those books that made it into the canon. So therefore, we should approach it simply as a history book and not necessarily in the same way that we would approach Jude or Second Peter where it carries the very authority of God. Okay, is that, is that clear? It's good for history, but it doesn't necessarily carry the authority of God like we would read any of these 66 books of the Bible. Okay? Now, now that I've said that, Peter and Jude quote directly from First Enoch. You can go and look it up for yourself. First Enoch, I believe it's chapter 6 of 1 Enoch as well. And they, it starts out almost exactly the same. Now, First Enoch would have been written before Peter wrote and before Jude wrote. It would have been written in between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was a well-established book at the time of Jesus. And it was a commonly held understanding of what happened in Genesis 6 is also explained in First Enoch. Now, there's extra details there in First Enoch, and that's where Jude and Peter quote from to get their source. Now, does that mean that Jude and Peter thought first Enoch carried the authority of God? No, not necessarily. It simply means they thought what they quoted from and what the Spirit was guiding them to quote from was accurate, and so they put it in to describe what the message that God was giving them as they wrote their books. Okay? So this part that, that they quote, particularly like being held in chains, that's not in Genesis, it's in first Enoch. So that was something that the Spirit of God leading Peter, leading Jude, they would have been familiar with. They, they put into their writings as they were describing some of these things. Okay? Now, I went further in detail. I even put it up on the screen so you could see it yourself back in 2020, so go look at that. But again, keep this in mind. Not one of the books of your Bible, so therefore, when you read it, you approach it like a history book. It has value for telling us what people understood and what they believed at the time, but we don't submit ourselves to it as if it has the authority of God. Okay? I want to be crystal clear on that. All right, so I said all that to say it was a common understanding in the time of Jesus, in the time of Peter, in the time of Jude, that what happened in Genesis 6 was indeed spiritual beings, a group of them called the sons of God, and specifically within that group of sons of God, a very specific number of them violated, rebelled against God, and they did so in this way. Now, before I move on past this, because my, my, my primary goal in bringing all this up is to say there's other spiritual beings out there besides Satan, and some of them have rebelled against God, and they do interact with humanity. Now, this is a unique interaction with humanity that we find in the scriptures, and God judged them already for it. He's got them currently in Tartarus under chains. Okay, this particular group that rebelled, they are currently in uh, the bound in chains until a future day of judgment. Okay, that's not the case for all the other spiritual beings that have rebelled, just this particular group. Now, if this is a proper understanding, and I'm going to keep using that kind of language because I'm just going to acknowledge that there's a lot of discussion, and it is, it is weird, right? Then it also helps me understand some things in the New Testament. For instance, you'll have to go look this up. I, di I didn't pull it up here. 1 Corinthians 11, there's a section where Paul talks about women wearing head coverings. And, and there's this, this very short phrase in the midst of that where it says, um, women should also cover their head for the sake of the angels, which is really weird. Why would, I, why would a woman cover her head for the sake of the 
angels if angels are you know, somewhere out there, right? And so a lot of people read that because it makes absolutely no sense otherwise. Read that and go, well, angel can also mean messenger. And so it was for the sake of the messenger, for the pastors and teachers who came to your church and they're traveling and they didn't know you and so you wanted to appear modest. And so they, they, they do that. Fascinating to me. This is why this is more heavy teaching today because I'm gonna share this with, kind of stuff with you. Fascinating to me. Archaeologists have found a medical document dating from the time of Jesus. They found several of them. But in the course of reading through one of these medical documents, one of the things they found was that the common understanding of um, reproduction was that the woman's hair was what became fertile. And it was from the hair that the seed came. It's crazy, right? Obviously, we, we, science has progressed, right? But that was the understanding. That was the best. Are we, did somebody say praise God? Is that, okay. So that was the, the best of the understanding at the time. So that was a common understanding that women's hair was, um, it was physically attractive in a very unique way because of what it was apparently capable of. And so when, when Paul's writing this and he says, cover your hair for the sake of the angels... It makes a whole lot more sense to me now that that could be, be referring to the Genesis 6, 4, where these angels, these sons of God, were enticed by women. And so Paul's saying, cover your hair. You don't want that same kind of thing to happen. It's, it's just a possibility that we'll never be able to absolutely figure out. But when I, when I understand Genesis 6 to be sons of God, spiritual beings, all of a sudden there's some things I'm going, well, that makes sense now. It wouldn't make sense to me today because that's not our understanding. But if I understand that's what they believed at the time, that's the understanding they had at the time, and therefore that influenced the way they lived, the way they spoke, the way they wrote, then I all of a sudden go, oh. So anyway, take that, leave it, whatever you want to do with it. The point is there's other spiritual beings that have rebelled against God. That's what I'm introducing you to today. There are other spiritual beings besides Satan that have rebelled against God. I want to take us to... Uh, one other spot in the New Testament, because I want us to see this. Humanity must stand against these rebellious spiritual beings. Humanity must stand against these rebellious spiritual beings. So Ephesians chapter 6, if you're using the Bibles, from the chairs, page 767. Now, we're going to have a whole nother message where we just spend time in Ephesians 6. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in Ephesians 6 now, only to point a few things out. Paul writes 610, Ephesians 610. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what I want to point out to you is this. One, Paul tells his readers, believers in Christ, he tells them, be strong in the Lord. All of that's important. Be strong. You, you're going to have to resist something. Now, we already saw that last, last two weeks when we looked at Satan, where we've been told, resist him. Stand firm against him, right? So Paul, same thing. Be strong, but be strong in the Lord. You find your strength in the Lord. You, you find the, the strength that you're going to need to do what Paul's going to tell you to do. You find it from the Lord. You don't engage in spiritual warfare apart from the strength the Lord gives. You don't resist the devil apart from the strength that the Lord gives. Right? And so he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Why? Because you and I have no power on our own to overcome anything that is spiritual in nature, demonic types of things. We can't. 
They're, they're completely different beings that they do interact with humanity, but you and I can't overcome them and are out with them. We, they've been around forever. We're not smarter than them. We can't outwit them. We can't outmaneuver them. And so Paul is very clear. You be strong in the Lord, and it's in the strength of his might, right? So if anybody is teaching you or coming to you about spiritual warfare, and they're telling you, you do this, and they're lacking God's might, God's strength. They're not grounding themselves in what the scriptures teach us about where our strength comes from. You will not succeed. It will be miserable. It reminds me of, um, oh, it's somewhere in Acts maybe chapter eight, but maybe chapter 19. One of those, maybe. Anyway, the story goes like this, where there's this guy who's enthralled with the the power that he sees Paul having, so that would probably make it chapter 19. Enthralled with the power that Paul's having to cast out these demons and stuff. And so they go up to this uh, demonized person, and they say, in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches, and the demons that are inhabiting and influencing this person say, uh, we know Jesus, and we know Paul, but who are you? And then they proceed to just jump this guy, right? Why? Because this person was not acting on the authority of Christ. He was in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. That's not trusting and resting in the authority of Christ. That's your own strength. And so Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. We're going to spend a whole week on that, that you may be able to do what? Stand against the schemes of the devil. So there are schemes of the devil. There are designs. There are plans. There's strategy. There's tactics that the devil has implemented and is continuing to carry out that must be resisted. Otherwise, it will pull us away from the Lord. It will turn us away from the Lord. Verse 12, and Paul says, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So flesh and blood are reference to what we can see, humanity. So you're engaged in some kind of struggle. It could be a relationship issue. It could be a job-related issue. It could be facing persecution for following Christ and someone, some government agency is coming at you because of, of the, um, your, your stance on value, values, something like that, right? And, and we would look at it and we go, well, my, my struggle's against my husband or my wife. My struggle is against um, this particular agency. My, my struggle is against the government. My struggle is against what? whatever, right? And we name something that we can see. And Paul says, nope, believer in Christ, your struggle is not against flesh and blood. You're experiencing it at the hands of flesh and blood. You're experiencing it at the, at the hands of people or organizations that you can see. But Paul says the battle, the struggle goes beyond what you can see. The struggle is unseen because it is against these things, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, what I want you to see here is that these are all different classes or categories of spiritual beings. Paul identifies different groups. He doesn't just say your battles against Satan or your battles against demons. He says, no, your battle is against all these different types of spiritual beings. He has names for them, which tells us there's categories. Now, these names are like a military ranking system. Where, where you've got authority. So think, look at this, rulers. If you're gonna be classified as a ruler, you have to have somebody or something to rule over, 
Rulers carries authority. If you have authority, you have authority over someone or something. Same thing with authorities, but it's a different word, right? You've got to have authority over something. So the conclusion is these two categories likely higher up, right? Against the cosmic powers. Only time this word is ever used in the New Testament. These cosmic powers over this present darkness. But that phrase, this present darkness, brings us back to things like 2 Corinthians 4, where we learned about the God of this age, or John 12, 31, where we, we hear about the prince of the, um, the, this world, or Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about the prince of the power of the air, right? All of these are references to Satan having authority in this realm, on the earth, right? And so when we read the cosmic powers over this present darkness, we also remember that um, in Colossians, we're told that when we're in Christ, we're transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So before we're in the kingdom because of being in Christ, we're in the domain of darkness. And what Paul helps us to see is there's cosmic powers over this present darkness. And against the spiritual forces of evil, where, just in case you were wondering, in the heavenly places, right? So Paul says your battle's not against what you can see. Now, the temptation would be to say, well, if my battle's not against my husband or against my wife, I, I shouldn't go to counseling. Well, no, counseling may be helpful for those kind of things. But what you need to understand is, particularly if you're a believer in Christ, your marriage is going to be under attack. Your marriage is more about God than it is about you. Your marriage communicates the gospel. If your marriage can come under attack and be destroyed or distorted, or if marriage itself can be destroyed or distorted, then the gospel to the world is distorted. Right? Parent and child. Parents, your primary responsibility is to disciple your kids and point them to the Lord, and another generation follows the Lord. If your parenting can get disrupted or distracted and your kids end up not following the Lord because you were neglectful or you were distracted or whatever, then that's, that's a spiritual battle, right? We should gather tools. We should gather resources, but we also need to keep in mind, ultimately, our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's not against what we can see. It's against what's unseen. And... When we think about those unseen things, you need to keep this in mind. There's different categories. And next week, we're going to look a little bit more at one of those categories. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look a little bit more about it. But I want you to see that. And here's a few other places Paul does this. Ephesians chapter 1. He says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So first thing, here's those categories again. Second thing, because Jesus has resurrected, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father, we're told he is seated above these things. Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension to where he is seated, gives him ultimate authority over these spiritual beings, these, these beings that have rebelled against God. He's seated far above them is what Paul says. All things have been put under his feet. We go to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers, authorities in the heavenly places. He's not talking about humans. He's saying in Christ and the mystery that comes in Christ and what God is doing to redeem people in Christ and bring them into this new group of people called the church, that that becomes known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. These, these rebellious spiritual beings, they see this plan of God coming together because remember, they don't know all things. They are not omniscient. They are not everywhere present. They, they are limited. They're created beings. And so they don't know 
all things. But they can read and they can see And as things are unfolding, what Paul helps us to see is God's purpose and plan in the church, it doesn't just have to do with humanity, it also has to do with these spiritual beings because he's showing them that you have been judged. Look at Colossians chapter two, verse 15. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, how? By triumphing over them in Christ. In the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, he has been placed far above all of these spiritual, be- all these spiritual beings who have rebelled, which is going to be incredibly important as we continue to talk about, well, how do we then resist? How do we interact with these spiritual beings? And, and how do, we, how do we, we go about engaging in spiritual warfare? So different classes of beings that are spiritually rebellious, Christ is over them. Humanity is called to resist them. I want to throw some verses up. These are verses you've already seen, but I want to put them before you. In addition to the ones I just put, these are ones we've already seen because engaging in spiritual warfare, you remember we looked at Jesus and the temptation and how did he combat the temptations? Every one of them, word of God. It's important that we know the word of God. So these are verses that I've been trying to put before you over the last couple weeks and there's going to be more coming where these would be ones, put them to memory. Understand the context, put them to memory. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, but for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The spirit of God that's in you is greater than the spirit that's in the world, which would be Satan. Matthew 6, our Lord taught us to pray, deliver us uh, not into temptation, but de- deliver us from the evil one. Uh, John fourteen thirty, Jesus says, I will no longer touch, talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. If he has no claim on Christ and we are in Christ, he has no claim on us, okay? I got a f- another one for you here. First Peter 5, 8, 9, we looked at last week. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. And remember we said resisting him is being firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. James 4, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Are you being tempted? Are you, are, you, are you facing something where, where you, you feel like this is an attack? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Then draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So where we started, rebellious spiritual beings interact with humanity, but humanity must stand against them. Right? My goal for you today is this. If you're not already aware, be aware. There are other spiritual beings out there, and it's not just angels, good angels, right? There are other spiritual beings out there who have rebelled against God. They do interact with humanity. They are working to distort and disrupt God's plan and God's purposes. Next week, we're gonna look a little bit more at the sons of God, but in uh, Psalm 82, and we're gonna kind of get into what some of y'all might know as territorial spirits. So that'll be fun too. Okay. What I want to do as we close out, because it doesn't really seem too appropriate to have like a, a song and let's just sing this. Let's just, he's going to play just instrumentally and let's just let it settle on us for a moment because I just dropped a whole lot on you. And ask the Lord, what does he have for you in this? If there's some kind of internal struggle going on, ask him to help you with that to understand more. And then we're going to dismiss. And then I want you to know this. When we dismiss, 
we're going to have a few people available to pray with you. There'll be uh, a few people up, up here, maybe kind of spread out in the room, and then they're available to pray with you about whatever, anything you'd like prayer on. If you would prefer to have somebody pray with you, but you don't want to be in here, you want a maybe more private place, uh, we have right outside these doors, there's a hallway and there's a classroom, 117. It's the middle classroom. And we'll have a few folks in there available to pray with you as well if you would like to have a place that's more private. And so I just know that that's going to be available for you in just a few moments. So Lord, would you have your way with us now? Just help us to uh, grow us in our understanding. Help us to expand our minds a bit to understand what you are revealing to us. And God, where, where there's struggle for us to understand who you are and what you've revealed, God, let your spirit teach us and provide us understanding.